Well, good morning, Antioch. Did you all enjoy your summer? Apparently it's over. Justin, would you grab me this table? Just happened to be the strongest guy I see. So good to see you all. My name's Pete, and uh, glad that you're with us this morning, especially those that are guests or visitors. Uh, We want to welcome you, and uh, thank you for being here, and I really hope that you're able to connect with God and others in a meaningful and authentic way today. We uh, are going to start a new teaching series this morning through the book of Philemon. So if you've got a Bible, I'm going to give you a few minutes to find Philemon, this hidden little gem in, uh, towards the end of the Bible. And um, Philemon is, we call it a book, but it's actually a letter. And uh, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and it's what's known as one of his prison letters, uh, one of the several letters that he penned while he was uh, in prison. And he had been traveling around, uh, planting churches, preaching the gospel, uh, training pastors all over uh, the, the known world at the time. And uh, then when he goes to prison, he continues to try to pastor and teach and encourage uh, these church communities through letter writing. And so um, the book of Philemon, or the letter to Philemon, was, uh, conti- was included with the book of Colossians. And so Philemon, uh, the recipient of this letter, was a member and probably a leader or an elder in the church at Colossae. And so when Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, he sent along with it this letter to Philemon. And so Colossians was a letter to that whole church community, and Philemon is to this specific man and his household within that church community. And so uh, if you found it yet, you'll notice that it's a very short little letter. And uh, it's actually the third shortest book in the Bible, right behind 2nd and 3rd John. It's only 25 verses or 335 words in the original language. So you can read the entire thing in under three minutes. And uh, we're actually going to do that in a little bit. And so this morning, um, I'm going to kind of give an introduction to this letter to Philemon and uh, look at a couple of the big themes, and then over the next few weeks, we're going to dive a little deeper and zero in on some of the main points uh, that Paul makes for his original reader that uh, we would also do well to pay attention to um, today. So will you join me in prayer, and then uh, we'll dive in. Our Father, we are so grateful for this moment, for this time and for this place, for these people. Grateful for the chance to gather together under the lordship of your son, Jesus, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. We're thankful for your presence here among us, your presence that truly has the power to change everything, including us. And so we invite you in your Holy Spirit to open our ears to hear your voice this morning. We pray that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of this letter would inspire our reading and our hearing and our obeying of it this week. So thank you, God, for every single person that you've gathered here today, and we dedicate this moment and call our attention to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know about you, um, I often find myself in situations where I kind of am a mediator between people that are having a hard time getting along. Have you ever had a situation like that 
or maybe you've got a couple friends or a couple family members that have a little conflict or beef going, or maybe a major one, and you somehow kind of find yourself in the middle of it. And these two people who you love and care about uh, have a damaged relationship, and you're trying to figure out how to help bring about peace and reconciliation and forgiveness so that those relationships can be made right. I find myself in that situation frequently for whatever reason. Part of it um, is that I tend to kind of understand or, or see both sides of arguments a lot of times. That sounds valid, and that also sounds valid. Uh, people also tend to seek me out because I listen pretty well, meaning I smile and nod a lot while you talk, and then you assume that I'm on your side. And so I do that with you, and then I do that with the person you have problems with, and both of you think I'm on your side, and then the three of us get in a room together, and it's incredibly awkward. Um, this has been a pattern my whole life. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, for a lot of us, maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, we kind of find ourselves trying to play this role of peacemaker or mediator. Um, for those of us who are parents, this is a big part of what we'd spend time doing every day. If we have multiple kids who are having problems getting along, we try to figure out uh, how to mediate when one of them hurts the other or takes something from the other or whatever. As parents, we're trying to figure out how do we get these kids to get along. Maybe you've utilized this tactic or, tactic or come across it online, uh, the get-along shirt. Um, <laughs> which seems to be working really well. <laughs> uh, we haven't tried that one yet, but Jen and I have other tactics of saying how, how can we get our kids not just to kind of shrug it off and move on, but actually when, when needed to forgive each other and to learn how to apologize really well and to have a restored relationship. And so uh, oftentimes we find ourselves trying to play the role of peacemaker or mediator. In writing this letter, Philemon, Paul is doing that work. And he has these two friends, this guy named Philemon, this guy named Onesimus. And both of these guys are really important to Paul. And he cares deeply about them and loves them. And they have this major conflict between them. And so Paul is attempting in writing this letter to be a mediator between them. And he longs to see these two brothers in Christ restored into a right relationship. And so as he writes, this is his aim, or really the purpose of this book of the Bible, is specifically for these two guys to figure out how to be restored into a right relationship with one another. Okay, And so what we'll see as we begin to look at this book a little bit deeper is that this isn't your average run-of-the-mill sibling rivalry kind of conflict, right? We're not just dealing with an annoying coworker or something like that. The conflict that Paul's trying to mediate is a humdinger. There is serious backstory to this and a ton of baggage. And for these two guys to be able to forgive each other and to move towards one another in reconciliation would literally require a miracle. And fortunately, Paul believes that such a miracle has actually occurred. And he argues that this thing called the gospel, the good news about Jesus and what he's done to save the world, actually has the power to change everything 
So much so that even the fiercest of enemies can become brothers and sisters. And so that's what this letter is all about. And so before we read it in its entirety, I want to show you a video that gives you an introduction to the book of Philemon. It's an excellent introduction and overview. And uh, it's the kind of thing where I feel like I'm cheating because this is what I would typically spend the next 10 minutes of this sermon doing, but these guys do it so much better than I could. Um, It's by some of our friends at the Bible Project. And if you don't know of their work, I would highly recommend it. Uh, They do little video introductions and overviews of every book in the Bible, as well as capture um, some of the big themes, such as atonement and image of God and, uh, and righteousness and justice and things like that. And they do it incredibly well. And so I'm going to let them kind of give us an overview of the book of Philemon. It's about a six-minute video, but uh, it should give you an idea of what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. Paul's letter to Philemon. It was written during one of Paul's many imprisonments, and it's actually his shortest letter in the New Testament, but don't let its size trick you. It's actually one of the most explosive things that Paul ever wrote. Here's the backstory that we can piece together from details within the letter. Philemon was a well-to-do Roman citizen from Colossae who likely met Paul during his mission in Ephesus, and he became a follower of Jesus. Then later, when Paul's co-worker Epaphras started a Jesus community in Colossae, Philemon became a leader of a church that met in his house. Now, Philemon, like all household patriarchs in the Roman world, owned slaves, one of whom was named Onesimus. And at some point, these two had a serious conflict. Onesimus wronged Philemon in some way. Maybe it was theft, or maybe he cheated him. We don't exactly know. But afterwards, Onesimus ran away. Eventually, Onesimus came to Paul in prison, likely to appeal for help. And in the process, he became a follower of Jesus and then a beloved assistant of Paul. And so Paul finds himself in a very difficult and delicate situation as he writes this letter. He's going to ask Philemon not just to forgive Onesimus and receive him back, but to embrace him as a brother in the Messiah and no longer as a slave. Here's how he does it. Paul opens with a prayer, first praising Philemon and thanking God for the love and faithfulness he's shown to Jesus, to his people. And he then paves the way for his request with this line, I pray that the partnership that springs from your faith may effectively lead you to recognize all the good things that work in us, leading us into the Messiah. Now, a key word here is partnership, or in Greek, koinonia. It means sharing or mutual participation. It's when two or more people receive something together and share in it, becoming partners. Paul's saying that faithfulness to Jesus means recognizing that all of his followers are equal partners who share together in the gift of God's love and grace. And for Paul, this experience of koinonia among Jesus' followers, it's not just an idea that you think about, it's something that you do in your relationships, which moves Paul on to his request. He finally brings up Onesimus. He says that he's become Paul's child in prison, meaning that Paul led Onesimus to dedicate his life and allegiance to Jesus, and so Paul and Onesimus are now family members in the Messiah. He's been serving Paul faithfully in prison, and even though Paul wants to keep him around, he knows that this unresolved conflict with Philemon has to be reconciled if they say that they're followers of Jesus. Which moves Paul on to his bold request, that Philemon receive Onesimus back 
no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother in the Lord. Now, this is a really tall order. Under Roman law, Philemon had every legal right to have Onesimus punished or put in prison. And Paul's not only asking him to forgive Onesimus, but to welcome back his former slave into Colossae as a social equal, as a family member. This is way more than kindness. This is unheard of. It's freeing a slave and then treating them like a family member. It upsets the status quo of the Roman social order. Why should Philemon do such a thing? And here Paul pulls a brilliant move. He recalls that key word from the opening prayer. He says, if you're truly a partner with me, it's that Greek word koinonia again, then welcome Onesimus as if he were me. And if he's wronged you or owes you anything, charge it to me and I will repay it. So in this request, we see the heart of Paul's gospel message being acted out. It's first of all about reconciliation. It's just like he told the Corinthians. In the Messiah, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. So in this situation, Paul is putting himself in the place of Jesus. He will absorb the consequences of Onesimus' wrongdoing. He will pay the cost so that he can be reconciled to Philemon. But Paul's message was about more than just a legal transaction. It's also about koinonia. Onesimus and Philemon and Paul are all equals before God. They all share the same need for forgiveness. And so the ground is level before the cross, which means that Philemon and Onesimus can no longer relate to each other as master and slave. They're family members. They're brothers in the Messiah. Or as Paul told Philemon and the whole church of Colossae, in God's new family, people are not Greek or Jewish or circumcised or uncircumcised or foreigners or uncivilized or slave or free, but the Messiah is all and is in all people. Paul closes the letter stating his confidence that Philemon will do even more than Paul's requested. And he asks him to prepare a guest room because he wants to visit as soon as he gets out of prison. And then with some final greetings, Paul ends the letter. Paul's letter to Philemon is powerful for many reasons. It's the only letter where Paul doesn't explicitly mention Jesus' death or resurrection, and this is not an oversight. He doesn't need to explain the cross with words because he's demonstrating it through his actions. Paul's embodying here the meaning of the cross. He has made himself the place through which Onesimus and Philemon are reconciled to God and then to each other. This letter also shows us that the implications of the good news about Jesus, they are extremely personal and never private. The fact that Philemon and Onesimus are now brothers in the Messiah, it makes their master-slave relationship totally irrelevant. The family of Jesus' people is the place where all are equal recipients of God's grace. It's a new kind of society, or a new humanity, as he called it in the letter to the Colossians, where people's value and social status, it's not defined by race or gender or social or economic class. In the Messiah, there are simply new humans who are equal partners, who share together in God's healing mercy through Jesus. And that's what Paul's letter to Philemon is all about. So good, huh? They have one of those for every book of the Bible, and they're free to download online. So good friends that are doing that. Let's read, now that you kind of get an idea of what's going on here, let's read the book of Philemon together. Paul 
a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Apaphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not, be, not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done anything to wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so this morning I want to focus in on just a, a couple ideas that will help frame this uh, vision of a new humanity under the Lordship of Christ as we dive into this letter for the next uh, several weeks. And I want to start by calling our attention in verse 3 to this greeting or this blessing that's really something that Paul uh, includes in pretty much every letter that he writes by pronouncing grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know Paul's writings at all, you know that he often uses this language, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, as a way of beginning what he's ab about to say, the truth that he's about to reveal about who God is and who we are in Christ. And so you've probably heard something before about why grace and peace. And part of it has to do that it's with the fact that it's a combination of both Jewish and Greek uh, greetings, right? Among the Jews that Paul's writing to, uh, the idea of peace, the greeting of peace, or literally shalom, is a common way that they, would, that they would greet one another. Shalom to you. 
And we know that this idea of shalom isn't just peace as in absence of conflict, but we know this deep Jewish history behind shalom, that it actually has to do with right relationships in every dimension. The picture that I am right with God in relationship, that I have a right relationship with myself, a right relationship with other people, and a right relationship with the rest of the world that God has created. And so when Jewish friends would see one another and speak the blessing of shalom or peace to each other, that's what they're, that's what they're blessing each other with. This vision that may your life be marked by life-giving, joyful, right relationships. And so Paul, writing this gospel letter to, uh, among, the, among those would be Jews, includes this Jewish greeting. And then this grace aspect is something that would have been much more common in a Greek or a Gentile understanding of the gospel, that they received Jesus as the logos, the word of God who was made flesh and revealed to us in his humanity the good news about what God is like. That when we look at Jesus, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and the, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus' mar- life was marked by grace and truth. And so Gentile Christians would pronounce this greeting of grace. May you live in the grace of Jesus. And so on one hand, Paul's doing something really uh, simple but really beautiful acknowledging that the body of Christ now includes both Jews and Gentiles, both those that are part of this long story that's, that's told in the scriptures and those that are kind of new to it are made one flesh as part of this new humanity. And so it's incredibly inclusive and welcoming and accepting language. That's the first part of what he's doing, but I think there's even more going on. Grace and peace really capture the essence of the good news that we call the gospel. And in fact, the result of the gospel, of what God is up to in the world, is this thing called shalom, the restoration of all things, that we believe that one day in Jesus, God is going to return to the earth and remake everything to the way that it should be so that all these relationships are restored back to their rightful order. So that's the result, the end of the gospel. That's what this story is moving towards. And how does that happen? Where does peace come from? And how does it come about? By grace. By grace. Not by human efforts. Not by religious striving. Not by people trying really hard to follow all the rules and earn a right standing with God. That's not where peace comes from. Peace comes from grace. It's a gift of God. It's when God intervenes in the world and in our lives and does something that we're unable to do ourselves. Grace literally means gift. And so in this little two-word blessing, in addition to being culturally inclusive of the multiple audience members that are there, he's also saying, here's the good news, that God has promised to bring about shalom And the way he's doing it is by the gift of his son, Jesus. That God has come to us in Christ and lived among us and died by our hands but has been resurrected from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and has poured out his spirit upon his people. 
And all of it is grace. All of it is gift. And this restoration of shalom is coming by the gracious hand of God. Grace and peace, the good news of Jesus. Now, in this specific letter, we have a situation between these two guys who are not at peace with one another. There's no shalom in their relationship. And as we heard now, we understand how deep this backstory goes. A former slave owner and his former slave, and this slave has robbed or wronged his slave owner in some way, and now they've both become part of Christ's family. And Paul's saying, so not only have both of you found peace with God in the vertical dimension, but this gospel would also call you to arrive at peace with one another at the horizontal. And he's saying, so if the goal is peace between this, in the midst of this relationship, how's it going to come across? How's it going to grow? It's only going to come by grace. It's going to be a gift of God. And so the gospel that Paul preaches and the gospel that he would proclaim he is in prison for is this gospel of grace. And he strongly believes with everything he's got that this gospel has both personal and social implications. That the peace that God is seeking to bring about in our lives and in our world has to do with our personal lives, but as the video said, not, it's personal but not private. It also has to do with the way that we interact within society. And so in the personal sense, he's asking the question, how can we be saved from our sins and find personal peace with God? How can we be justified or made right or, or forgiven and included into the life of Christ that, that we were made for? The gospel answers this question by grace. By grace we are saved through faith. By grace we are given peace with God and invited to find freedom from our sin, from our shame, from our fear, from our guilt. So there's a personal dimension to this grace-peace thing. And then there's this social dimension where he's asking, will there ever truly be peace on earth? Will there ever be a day when things in the world are as they ought to be? Will there ever be a day when war and violence and oppression and injustice is dealt with and done away with for eternity? And if so, how is that day going to come about? Again, it's grace. It's a gift of God that he's entered into our world in the Son and in the Spirit and is bringing about the restoration of all things. And therefore, those that are experiencing this repair of our relationship with God and are learning to live at peace with him, we are also called to be engaged in pursuing peace in the world. We are also called to be agents of grace, to bring about reconciliation and hope and freedom for those who need it the most. So the personal and the social, the answer to both those questions is the same. It's the gospel. It's the good news that in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. And so it's how Paul starts this letter. It's how he begins this conversation. Because he's about to ask these guys to do something that sounds crazy. 
and it's going to be incredibly difficult to move into the conflict that's between them and to actually trust the grace that is Jesus is strong enough to make former enemies brothers in Christ. That's how he starts this whole conversation. If you want peace, the only way is through grace. And then notice how he ends the letter as well. This blessing in verse 25, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your, with your spirit. It's like he's reminding Philemon and his household, this church that gathers in his home. He's calling them into this new story, this new reality where grace calls the shots. We're deep in the depths of our soul. Grace be with your spirit, like deep in the depths of our soul that we are shaped by the grace of Jesus. He says again, that's your only shot at peace. In verse 11, Paul uses this word formerly to describe how things were before God intervened in the world in Christ and how before God showed up in the lives of these two guys. Formerly, the old way of things, the old reality, the way things used to be. He says, formerly, he was useless to you, but now, but now, but now, he's become useful both to you and to me. This is the paradigm Paul uses throughout this letter to talk about that something has happened in the world that changes everything. Formerly, things were this way. But now, but now, but now, things are this way. What has changed? Well, it's the arrival of God in Christ. It's the grace of God given to us in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. The world was different before. But now, if this story is true, if this gospel has actually taken place and touched down on this earth, But now, there's a new way. A new way of thinking. A new way of being human. And so throughout this letter, Paul's working with this set of assumptions. That if God really has been so gracious to come into humanity and live among us and suffer with us and by our hand. And to defeat our biggest enemy and rise again from the dead and invite us to be part of his movement in the world, Paul's saying, if that's true, if that gospel story has actually happened, then it changes everything. Grace changes everything. So much so that these relationships, that in the old order of things, there would be no hope or even thought of reconciliation. But in the new order of things, under the lordship of Christ on earth, that enemies can become brothers, right? How does this actually work? I think we have a concept for how grace can change me and how when I've experienced the grace of God in Christ, that now that's going to change the way I interact with other people and that sort of thing. But Paul seems to have a much bigger picture of the gospel than that. Yes, it is personal, and there's an invitation to be at peace with God, but he actually seems to write about the gospel as if it's actually hope for the world. 
yes, it's hope for our life, but ultimately he talks about it as, as if it's hope for humanity. How does this actually work? How is the gospel of Jesus actually changing the entire world? So one way to start to answer that question would be by imagining what the world would look like without Jesus and the movement that he started. John Lennon famously invited us to imagine a world with no heaven and no hell and with no religion and assumed that that would be a better world than the one we have now. But I want to ask you to imagine a world with no Jesus, a world where there was never a Christmas where Jesus was born, or an Easter where Jesus was risen from the dead. Imagine a world without the story of Christ's coming and teaching and suffering and dying. What would that world look like? Well, we don't know for sure. But here's what I would argue, and this may sound crazy, but stay with me for a sec. I would argue that there is strong reason for us to believe that had Jesus never entered human history, the world as we know it would be an absolutely different place than it is now. I would argue that things like war and poverty and injustice and terrorism even though we live with those things today, in a world where Jesus had never come, they would be a million times stronger, more prevalent, and more destructive. I would argue that in 2017, on a planet Earth where Jesus had never come, we would be in a living hell. I really believe that, that he has changed the world, that he has saved us, that he truly already is the savior of the world. Here's how. Once the world began to come to understand the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross as a co-suffering love and an alternative to violent revenge, it introduced this idea of grace, saving, loving grace that helped mitigate man's inhumanity toward man. You realize that nothing in human history has done more to confer dignity upon the individual than what we celebrate at Christmas, the story of incarnation. That if God has truly become human, then we would have to reconsider how we treat fellow humans. That they've now become godly. This is really where the concept of human rights came from, from the story of Jesus. Now, there's, I know there's some objections to this idea that Jesus has saved the world and made it a vastly different place than it would be otherwise. And one of those objections would be, do you watch the news? Do you know anything about history? Our world has been and continues to be marked by terrible violence by genocide, by terrorism, by incredible poverty and injustice and trafficking and slavery and bombings and shootings. Like that has happened in a lot of ways in a lot of places since the time of Jesus. 
hasn't it? Yes, it has, but think about this. Why do we consider these things to be atrocities and not just normal? Why do we recognize genocide and massacres and terrorism as horrible things? Why do we understand that that's not the way things are supposed to be? Why do we recognize that and even go to the extent of labeling it evil or wickedness? Before Christ, see, this kind of stuff was completely normal in the pagan world. It's just the way things were. Survival of the fittest, the triumph of the strong over the weak. Violence was normal. But since the time of Christ, when Jesus shows up in the world and suffered along with humanity, and when he rose from the dead, everything changed. The whole world was introduced to this story of a suffering human that was God. And he introduces the idea of compassion for the poor and for the marginalized and for the oppressed. He actually said, whatever you do for the least of these, for the hurting, the hungry, the sick, the imprisoned, you do unto me. Now, we're familiar with those teachings of Jesus. But we don't always recognize the fact that this is absolutely revolutionary within human history. This is not something that existed within the pagan world. Remember last week when Ken was talking about the story of Cain and Abel? And God asks, where's your brother? And he goes, am I my brother's keeper? Within the pagan world, it's like, of course you're not your brother's keeper. Of course you wouldn't go out of your way to care for or to look after others. But Jesus shows up and says, yes, you are. Here are your brothers. Don't do violence to one another. Love one another. Care for one another. Don't harm each other but bless each other. And whatever you do for each other, especially the least of these, you're doing unto me. When Paul says, formerly but now, he's not just, not just talking about personal conversion to Christianity. He's talking about a whole new reality. Things are different because of who Jesus is and what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection. If Christ is king, then everything is turned upside down and there's a whole new story. Listen to theologian David Bentley Hart. He writes about this. Even the most ardent secularists among us generally cling to notions of human rights, economic and social justice, providence for the indignant, legal equality, or basic human dignity that pre-Christian Western culture would have found not so much foolish as unintelligible. 
It is simply the case that we distant children of the pagans would not be able to believe any of these things. They would have never occurred to us had our ancestors not once believed that God is love, that charity is the foundation of all virtues, and that all of us are equal before the eyes of God, that to fail to feed the hungry or care for the suffering is to sin against Christ, and that Christ laid down his life for the least of these brethren interesting argument that even the most ardent secularists among us that hold these values of justice and equality and human rights that that whole set of beliefs was introduced into the world through Jesus that's how we got here listen to pastor and theologian Brian Zond Jesus has saved the world from the self-centered, brother-denying ethic witnessed in Cain. An ethic that viewed the helpless as undeserving of aid and unworthy of compassion. After all, it was the followers of Jesus who pioneered such radical innovations as hospitals, orphanages, leprosariums, almshouses, relief for the poor, and public education. It's the idea that the world somehow or other would have arrived at an ethical worldview that could produce such charitable practices practices and institutions without Christ is an idea wholly lacking any evidence. As I point out to secular critics, I know of many St. Jude and St. James hospitals, orphanages, relief agencies, and the like, but I'm still looking for the Nietzsche hospital or the Voltaire's children's home. Pretty interesting, huh? Formerly, but now. There was an old order of things, an old way of being human, an old way of trying to arrive at rightness with God and navigate humanity. But now, but now there's grace. But now Jesus has shown up in our world. And not just taught this ethic of love and justice, but has actually embodied it and has lived it out. And by his grace has made a way that we can be reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, reconciled to ourselves, reconciled to the rest of creation and become agents or ministers of reconciliation in the world. The gospel changes everything. And so in this letter, under this huge, brilliant idea, is this very specific application. This very specific relationship where there is no peace. And Paul, doing the work of an agent of reconciliation, is calling these two guys to come out from the old way of doing things and into the new. To step into this new story of grace and peace. So he opens and closes the letter with this pronouncement and uses this argument of formerly and but now 
to declare grace changes everything, including the way we would relate to one another. Especially within the church of Jesus. That part of this story is that there's a new humanity that's called forth by the Spirit of God. That the church is supposed to be the one place in all of creation where the lordship of Jesus goes unopposed. The one place in all of town where we are not living under the old order of things, but we're living under this new reality. We're living into this story of people receiving and extending and participating in this mission of grace and peace. So he's saying within the body of Christ of all places, that's the playing field where this gets lived out first. That if God has invited us into peace with himself, then we've got to learn how to live in peace with each other. Now here's what's great. Some of us may have had to work through some significant harm or those that have sinned against us or hurt us in in really legit ways within the church. But Paul kind of holds up this case as like the most extreme example I can think of. One of you used to own the other one and now you're brothers in Christ. And the idea is that if Philemon and Onesimus can be reconciled and live at peace one another by the grace of God, then you and me sure better be able to as well. That as brothers and sisters in Christ, this kind of reconciliation and peace has to mark our community. And so when we sin against each other, we forgive. When we're hurt by each other, we reconcile. When we find ourselves sharing life with people we never would have chosen, we receive that as grace too. So that we can truly be a display and a witness of this new reality. The dream is that the church of Jesus would be known as a place where people who would never get along in the wild are living as brothers and sisters sharing the blood of Christ together. So a couple questions. Who do you have the hardest time recognizing as your brother or sister in Christ? And how is God asking you to extend his grace to that person? Who do you have the hardest time recognizing as your brother or sister in Christ? And how is God asking you to extend his grace to that person. And secondly, we should always greet one another with grace. Treat one another with grace. Which means assuming the best about one another. Not dwelling on our shortcomings, but emphasizing strengths. Paul does this repeatedly in this letter. And finally, whenever God's people find themselves in conflict, we ought to urge one another towards reconciliation. Paul acts as a peacemaker or a mediator between these two brothers, pointing out to them the grace that they've been given and calling them to extend that grace to each other. For the most part, many of us would rather not engage. We'd rather stay out of it. But there will be times as the family of God that Jesus invites us to play this role 
of mediator or peacemaker, like Paul and ultimately like him. As the video does an excellent job of portraying, Paul is reenacting just how far this goes and that it is Christ himself who achieves this peace by the grace that is the cost of his own life. That he lays himself down for the sake of bringing others into his family and the fullness of the relationship that he has known with his father through all eternity. And so at times this will be incredibly costly to us, but I'm willing to guarantee very rarely will ever cost us what it cost Jesus. And so we'll invite you to come to the table this morning to receive communion if you'd like to. And to come and in this moment to be reconciled to God, to receive right relationship and peace with him. But at the same time, as you're receiving Christ in the bread and in the cup, you are also receiving an invitation to join him on his mission, to pursue peace with one another and join him on his mission in the world as well. So I'll invite you to come to the table. Also, we have members of our prayer team, elders and women that would love to pray with you this morning. If there's any part in your life that you want help trusting uh, God with, if there's a sickness you're dealing with, if there's something you've been praying for, or maybe there's just a part of you that's going like the guy who came to Jesus, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. If you're struggling in your faith, our team would love to listen and to pray with you. So will you stand with me and we'll respond in worship. Lord Jesus Christ, we celebrate you as the king of the world, making all things new, restoring all things back to the way they ought to be. You and only you are the one who can bring about the world that we all long for, a world of shalom, a world of justice, a world of peace. There is no hope for the world or hope for humanity or hope for me or any of us without you. But we're here this morning celebrating that everything has changed, that you are the king of the world, that you are the savior, that you are our hope. And so I pray for our community here at Antioch, would we truly be a legit and authentic expression of this new humanity? Would your grace penetrate our hearts so deeply that we would find ourselves extending grace, pursuing peace, even with those who have hurt us the hardest? And God, would you use us on your mission of peace and reconciliation in this world? Open our eyes to see what you see, to love who you love, and to lay down our lives as you've laid down your life for us. So we say thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus, this morning for the life that you've given us in you. And we trust ourselves under your lordship and under your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.